Judges chapter 1, beginning at verse 22, please hear now as I read uh, the word of God. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them, and the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz, and the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all of his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz, that is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean or and its villages, or Ta'anak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. And when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal, so the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab, or of Akzib, or of Helba, or of Afrik, or Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Herez and in Aijalon and in Sha'albim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Ammonites ran of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Let's go before the Lord again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you that you have sent your son Jesus to be the once for all sacrifice for your people. We thank you, Father, that we do enter into worship with those people who have gone before us to become the church triumphant. And so we pray, Father, as the church militant that you would help us this day, that we may understand your word as you intended it. Help us, Father, that we may love you a little bit more from reading this passage serve you a little more willingly 
And we ask it all, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. About the middle of the second century, there was a false teacher named Marcion who rose up and began to affect the church. He was not Martian. Sometimes people pronounce his name that way. He's not from Mars. He was simply a guy who lived in what we would call modern-day Turkey. And Marcion taught the view that the gods of the Old and the New Testament were two different gods. The God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, was not very kind. He was a God that was harsh and exacting with his people, and he punished them for his sins. And Marcion also had the view where he was opposed to anything that was Jewish and anything that was material because he considered material things evil and of this world. Eventually, Marcion became representative of that group of people that were called uh, the Gnostics, and they introduced false teaching into the church. Marcion did believe, however, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and so he decided that the God and Father of Jesus was a different God than the God of the Old Testament. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ was a merciful God who granted us everything that we need to live the Christian life, and he gave us everything freely and did not hold our sins to give us. And so it was easy to be a Christian according to Marcion's outlook. Have you ever known anybody that was like this? Well, it wouldn't surprise me if you did because I have known those who had Marcionite-like understanding in the church today, even in the evangelical church today. Back in Louisiana before I moved to Houston, I knew a fellow who told me one day that God does not punish people for their sins today. He doesn't really hold them accountable. He, he, all that Old Testament stuff is passed away, and so therefore we don't need to be afraid of God in any way. Well, while it's true that there is more emphasis in the Old Testament on God's wrath against transgressors, it's not true that such teaching is missing in the New Testament. Think, for example, of the uh, people in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, who lied to the Holy Spirit, and the Lord struck them down for their sin. Think of the people in Corinth who abused the Lord's Supper, and the Lord caused some of them to be sick, and even some of them died. And so the New Testament further tells us as Christians that we are to study the Old Testament, and so therefore it has not passed away. It says in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. And so the apostle Paul encourages us to study the things that were written in former days, that is, the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, because it includes things that will encourage us and help us to persevere in the Christian life. And so Paul believes that the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament are the same, and so should we. 
And with this background, I am endeavoring to preach through the book of Judges so that the Marcionites will be annihilated just like the Canaanites and the Amorites, etc. Not that they should actually be killed, but their attitude should be transformed so that they have a proper view of understanding of the Old and the New Testament. In verses, chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 5, the author gives us the first of two introductions to the book of Judges. And so today we're covering the latter part or the last half of the first introduction to the book of Judges. And the introduction, the first introduction, tells us what happens from a merely human perspective. It was something that you or I could have witnessed the events and reported on as eyewitnesses. Whereas the second introduction tells us what was going on with Israel from God's perspective. And last time, the first half of the first introduction showed the military successes of the southern tribes of Judah and Simeon. They generally were faithful when they entered the promised land to go in and to annihilate the inhabitants just as the Lord commanded them to do in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 1 through 5 as I led last time. But then beginning in verse 19, failure began to creep in. They were not able to drive out the inhabitants and so that continues into the remaining part of this chapter 1 in Judges. And with these failures, we detect a four-stage decline of Israelite faithfulness. The first stage is success. The second stage is coexistence of Israel with the Canaanites. The third stage is coexistence of the Israelites with the Canaanites, but with Canaanite domination. And then the fourth stage is oppression and confinement of Israel by the Canaanites. Well, the first stage started last time with the initial successes of the southern tribes, as I said, and it continues into this uh, part of Scripture. The second stage began with the initial failures in verses 19 and 21, and it also continues with the Canaanites dwelling among the Israelites and the last two stages will appear as we go through the end of this chapter. And so in verses 23 to 26, we have the account of the house of Joseph. The tribe of Joseph, were, Joseph was uh, one of the sons of uh, Jacob. He should have been a tribe in his own right. And so it describes him as a tribe as they enter into the promised land. But eventually, Joseph's tribe is going to be divided into two tribes named after Joseph's sons, who are Ephraim and Manasseh, but initially they were counted as one tribe. And in reminiscent of the Battle of Jericho, the Josephites sent men to spy out the land, and with help from one of the inhabitants of the land, they probably found a secret way into the city of Luz, and so they went in and they annihilated the city, captured it just as the Lord had told them to do. And so in these first few verses, these tribes also acted faithfully like their southern brethren had done. 
But then in verse 27 through 29, the second stage of the decline begins to appear. It talks about the tribe of Joseph now as separate entities, as the tribe of Manasseh and also of Ephraim. And they did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. Also in verse 30, Zebulun is in like manner. They did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. However, Israel dominated the Canaanites here where it says that the Canaanites lived among the Israelites. And also it says Zebulun and one of the other tribes put them to forced labor, indicating that Israel was the major player. But Israel did not annihilate the Canaanites as the Lord had told them to. And so how does all this warfare apply to us today? Well, sometimes people try to apply Old Testament teachings in a way that God did not intend for us to use the Bible. For example, in church history, in New Testament church history, the church tried to apply Old Testament warfare uh, through the Crusades. They said that we're going out and attack the enemies of the church in our day, which back in that time were people in the uh, Near East, uh, Muslims in particular, and tried to take back a physical land that we believe belongs to the church. Well, God did not give the church that duty to do, and so that is a misapplication of Old Testament warfare. Or sometimes people take instructions intended for Israel to be applied to America in all of its detail. Now, Israel were the people of God. The church is the old, uh, are the people of God as well. Israelites were the Old Testament church. I don't want to draw a great distinction between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God because Israelites are in the church today. The church today is composed of believing Jews and Gentiles. So there is continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the Old Testament church, Israel, was a different administration of God's covenant. It included the civil magistrate in the Old Testament, and the New Testament church does not include the civil magistrate today. And we see this in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, where it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That means the redeemed of all the ages come from all nations, from all peoples, from all languages. We all make up the church today, and that was not completely true in the Old Testament. There were some Gentiles that were incorporated into the Old Testament people of God, but primarily the church was made up in the Old Testament by ethnic Israelites. And so to take every detail out of the Old Testament and try to apply it to any particular nation today is a misapplication of the scriptures. Now, I'm not saying things uh, in the Old Testament do not apply to all nations. God just does not have a particular covenant with any particular nation today as he did with Israel. 
all nations today have the obligation to obey the Lord, but America is not peculiar in that respect. Americans are not God's covenant people. The church is God's covenant people. So it's wrong for us today to apply it in the way that people sometimes do. And so how do we in the new covenant apply this Old Testament principle of warfare? Well, we must ask after judges, how does the Bible further elaborate on this principle of warfare? Well, the New Testament tells us that we're not a people looking for a physical land, for we are strangers and pilgrims on this earth, looking for a heavenly country, the new heaven and the new earth. And so God has not given us a physical land that we must possess or a national enemy that we must destroy. And so Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And so the church today in the new covenant, we do not physically war against nations, but against a host of evil spirits, including the devil himself and all the demons that are under his control. And so whereas the Old Testament people of God had national as well as spiritual enemies, believers today have only spiritual enemies to overcome, although Satan sometimes influences men and even nations to persecute the church. And according to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, we are to therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And so the Christian parallel to Israel's conquest over Canaan is to carry on our warfare with spiritual weapons like the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, etc., rather than military weapons like were used in Judges. I'd like to say more about this. This is a very complicated subject, but generally speaking, when we look at the book of Judges, we look at how is the concept in a particular chapter elaborated on or expanded on as we go through the rest of the Bible when I try to determine how this applies to my life today. In verses 31 through 33, the third stage of moral decline appears. The tribes of Asher and Naphtali failed to drive out the Canaanites like the three previous tribes. But unlike their other northern brethren, these Israelites lived among the Canaanites. And so in this third phase, the Canaanites dominated the Israelites in these areas except in a couple of cities. And then in verse 34, the tribe of Dan experienced the fourth stage, the lowest point of spiritual decline, total oppression and confinement by the Amorites. And so completely did the latter gain the upper hand that Dan not only did not live among the Amorites, the Amorites even chased Dan off so that they could not come down in the area occupied by the Amorites. And so this was complete failure, except Joseph was to exert pressure along their border with Dan. And so when the whole process of conquest and settlement has run its course, the focus of the chapter has shifted from conquest to coexistence to domination of Israel by their enemies. 
And Israel at this point is being Canaanized rather than Canaan, being turned into the inheritance of God's people. If Israel had obeyed the Lord, as we saw in the earlier part of the chapter, then they would have received their godly inheritance in the land that the Lord had promised to give them. But instead, Israel had disobeyed and reaped the consequences of their waywardness. Now, it's not just that Israel just couldn't quite overcome the Canaanites. They just weren't quite strong enough to do so because there's evidence in this passage that they intentionally disobeyed the Lord. Four times the text tells us that the Canaanites or the Amorites became subject to forced labor. And so Israel, if they were not initially strong enough to overcome them, they eventually became strong enough. But instead of annihilating them, they just simply made them their slaves. And this intentional lack of obedience is not unique to Israel. The New Testament church today can be canonized just as the Old Testament people of God uh, were. If we examine our failures before the Lord, we will discover that very often we also compromise not with old covenant foreigners, but with new covenant enemies, with the world and the flesh and the devil. Like the Israelites, we want to blend into the world, not to be different from our unbelieving neighbors, to conform to their moral standards. For example, we think like the world when we run our households without consideration for God's ways. Men, when you work in the business world, are you so possessed by the attitude that the unbelieving world has that you don't have time for your family or for devotions or for worship? Are you so driven by your desire to succeed, which the world will certainly teach you, that you do not honor the Lord in the way that he says? And I know how it feels like because I remember when I went out for interviews, they always wanted to tell me what were, their go- what were my goals in life. What was I trying to achieve? Well, I guess it's good to be goal-oriented, but I just wanted a job. Yeah. You might be able to identify that, but you had to play the game with them. You had to be the same mindset because they wanted hard-driven people that were completely consumed by their desires to do what they wanted to do. In fact, they wanted you to be conformed to their ideas, which would preclude you being conformed to the Lord's ideas if you bought into it to the degree that they wanted. Ladies, are you so influenced by feminist views, but there is no place for submissiveness to your husbands? And parents, what is your goal for your children in life? Is that they grow up and believe in Christ and serve Christ to the degree that they are able to? Or are you more concerned about their career choices and their social opportunities? We have forgotten the apostles' admonition in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. By loving the world, we love its forbidden cares, pleasures, and profits, allowing them to absorb our whole attention, says Ralph Davis. And in doing so, our graces will weaken, our lusts revive, and the prince of this world will deepen his influence on us, says J.C. Ryle. And like Israel, we incur God's displeasure and chastening. 
and so it must not be so amongst you or with me. We should do all in our power not to be canonized along with the rest of the world. We must resist being conformed to their philosophy and their lifestyle and to present ourselves as holy sacrifices acceptable to God, doing his will from the heart. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, the narrative switches from the history of Israel to the angel of the Lord and his review of their circumstances. The angel of the Lord recalled God's words to the Israelites. God had made a covenant with them. God had brought them out safely out of the land of Egypt. And he said that he would be with them when they went into the land and would give them victory over their enemies. And Israel also had obligations referring to the commands that God gave them earlier in the Pentateuch. But they have not kept their part of the bargain. They were not to enter into covenants or treaties with the Canaanites, but were to destroy them and to tear down their idols. Chapter 1 does not record any specific covenants that Israel made with the Canaanites, but the implication of that statement is that when they settled among the Canaanites or the Canaanites settled among them, that they did make Uh, covenants with them and as a result God will no longer drive out the Canaanites before them the Canaanites will become a pain in the neck to Israel and the Canaanites God will be a snare to God's people and this means Israel will be enticed by the Canaanites to sin by committing idolatry against the Lord and appropriately the Hebrews responded they cried at this pronouncement and they memorialized the name of the place where the angel spoke to them as bokim, which in Hebrew means uh, weepers or weeping. And also they sacrificed to the Lord, which indicates their repentance. So they responded like they should have responded. They indicated that they had done wrong and that their desire was for renewed obedience and fellowship. It does not say in this chapter how God viewed Israel's repentance, but God is a merciful God. God would see the sincerity of the way that they acted, and God would pardon them and would renew his covenant obligations with them. We know that because it says in Joel chapter 2, verse 13, Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. God relents from his displeasure and the judgment he pronounces on his people, for God has no pleasure in carrying out his vengeance against his people, but rather to extend mercy and grace to those who seek it like the Israelites did at Bochim. In a similar way, uh, he promises Christians in 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As I said in my prayer, Jesus made the once-for-all sacrifice of himself on the cross, which once received by grace through faith gives us forever 
forgiveness of our sins, right standing before God, and eternal life. But the Christian life is not a life of sinless perfection. The Christian life is a life of continuing repentance because we have that remnant of sin still living in us. It is true that when we become Christians or before we become Christians that we have no choice but to sin. But when Christ comes into our life in the power of the Holy Spirit, he breaks that power of sin in us, so now we have a choice. But that remnant of sin is still living in us so that we still sin. We still sin regularly. We may sin many times a day, and so regularly, at the very least, we have the need to come before the Lord and ask forgiveness and cleansing of those sins and to renew our obedience. And so you may feel like, well, gee, I really don't feel like that I'm out from under the power of sin. Well, let me tell you, I know what that feels like. I know what it feels like to sin many times a day. But hopefully that what we are doing is we are progressing just like this, not in a steady line. It may be a little bit like this as we go up. But we are progressing because now you have a concern, if you're a Christian, not to sin against the Lord. But you're overpowered by temptation, and so am I every day. And so we have to go before the Lord for forgiveness of those sins, not to gain salvation, but to maintain our fellowship with the Lord. And so maybe you wandered in here today, and you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. You don't know about the Lord in this level of detail, and you've come for the first time to realize that you have a need to get right with God, and that rightness with God comes only through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ came and kept God's law perfectly and earned a righteousness that when we put our faith in him, that righteousness, though we are completely unrighteous by God's standard, is credited to us. It doesn't make us righteous in that particular instance, but it is credited to our account so that God sees us as righteous because he sees the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ. That righteousness is given to us and our sinfulness is given to the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ pays the penalty for all of the sins that we have committed all through our lives, not only up to that point, but all through the rest of our lives. And so we have right standing before God because of that when we come to faith. And God invites you today, if you've never done so, to come in repentance and faith. Repentance is turning away from the rebellion that you've lived in before God all of your life. You say, well, I'm not really aware that I've done that. Yes, you have. Nobody here was born a Christian. Everybody here had to come to repentance and faith, just like I'm instructing you. So I invite you to join with us, to become Christians with us, become a follower with us, and trust completely, rely completely on what Jesus has done for you to provide your salvation. You do not add your good works to that. You do not have to merit it because you cannot merit it. Because anything that you do, God does not accept because it's not perfect. It's always tainted with the wrong motives or something else. And so all that, Jesus, all that God accepts today is the perfect sacrifice of Christ 
on our behalf. And so won't you come to Christ today and accept the gift that he gives you? Now, he tells you to count the cost. He says all of us should count the cost before coming to Christ because it's not a rose garden to be a Christian. There may be difficulties. The Christians in the first few centuries were thrown to the lions in the Colosseum, and it may be net for you and for me. However, can you turn away from the goodness of God knowing what he is, knowing that it is the right thing to do to be on right terms with God and all of the blessings that he offers us to help us live the Christian life and to be what he would have us to be. And so I urge you today to come to Christ if you never have before. For those of you that have come to Christ today, just like I do, you have need to go before the Lord and to confess our sins each and every day. And maybe you haven't been walking with the Lord as you should have. Maybe you haven't been walking in the light as 1 John chapter 2 talks about. And so that means to simply do what God has commanded us in the Bible. Now I ask you to repent of that attitude, to go before the Lord and confess this sin, and to renew your obedience and then I urge you to uh, seek the Lord's favor, and he will abundantly pardon. Let's go before the Lord once again. Heavenly Father, we see that your Old Testament people were not always faithful. And we can identify, Father, as your New Testament people that we are not always faithful today. We thank you, Father, for all the blessings that you have given us. But we ask, Father, that you would forgive us for those things that we have done amiss. We know, Father, at times that we have even provoked you to your face. And so we ask, Father, that you would pardon us and that you would help us on the path of holiness 